Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 236, The Combat Zone, with Jan Brogan. Hi, I'm Jake. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by Jan Brogan, author of the recent book, The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston's Struggle for Justice. In the book, Jan turns her impressive research and reporting skills on the case of Andy Puppolo, a 21-year-old Harvard football player who was killed in a fight in the combat zone in 1976. The case would pit one of the most privileged groups at the most privileged school in the world against three poor black men on the margins of society, while in the background, Boston tore itself apart on racial lines. The book plums the depths of white working-class Boston's racial resentments during the busing era, a criminal justice system that stacked the deck against black defendants, and a police department that was compromised at its core by organized crime. It highlights the street violence that helped cement Boston's reputation as the most racist city in the country, as well as the two trials that came to diametrically opposite verdicts in the same city just a couple of years apart. It also puts the reader in the mind of the younger brother of the victim, left behind to deal with his feelings of grief and guilt while wrestling with the possibility of revenge. But before we talk about the Puppolo case, I just want to pause and thank John S., who recently gave us a generous gift on PayPal, and everyone who supports the show on Patreon. Sponsoring Hub History on Patreon means committing to giving us $2, $5, or even $10 a month. Our sponsor's consistent support means that we have a steady source of funding to be able to purchase access to research databases, pay for audio processing tools to clean up how I and our guests sound, and get access to web hosting and security and podcast media hosting to get our words to your ears. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. Our sponsors are the ones who make it possible for us to keep making Hub History. So a heartfelt thank you to all our new and returning sponsors. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Jan Brogan is an award-winning journalist and novelist living in the Boston area. She's been a staff writer for the Providence Journal and Worcester Telegram, and her pieces have appeared in The Globe, Boston Magazine, and several other periodicals. When she's wearing her novelist hat, she writes mystery novels that feature a journalist as the intrepid investigator, rather than a more traditional hard-boiled detective. Her Halia Hearn series is anchored by a confidential source, which has been optioned by Transactional Pictures for development into a television series. Her new nonfiction book is The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston's Struggle for Justice, which is in stores now. At the heart of the book is a terrible crime the 1976 stabbing of Andy Puppolo, a white Harvard football player, at the hands of a black man who was characterized in court as a pimp. The crime took place in the combat zone, the nearly lawless red light district at the heart of Boston that was caught up in what Time magazine called the age of porno. The case played out against the backdrop of the peak of racist violence during the busing conflict with the trial becoming a proxy for white rage against efforts to desegregate Boston schools. Jan was incredibly generous with her time, and somehow we still barely scratched the surface of the Puppolo story, which sells the book short. Beyond our conversation, Combat Zone is the story of racial tension in Boston in the explosive late 70s, 
and a trial that changed Massachusetts law seemingly forever. As I go back and listen to our conversation, there are times when we seem to dance around the most sensitive aspects of the case. In retrospect, that may have been because I assumed that we would disagree on some of the fundamentals of the story. Jan seems more receptive to the idea that Andy Popolo and the Harvard football team were innocent victims of a crime. And maybe I worked in Harvard Square bars for too long, but I tend to believe the defense's theory from the second trial, that Andy and the football team were a drunken wolf pack who went into the zone looking for trouble. I think that you need to pick up a copy of the book using our affiliate link, which you can find at hubhistory.com slash 236. Read it for yourself and see which version of events convinces you, and whether you think justice was done at the first or the second trial. I'll also note that there's an occasional crackling sound from a loose connection in Jan's mic. It gets better as our conversation goes on, but it never quite goes away. I did my best to minimize it in editing, but please forgive the sections when I wasn't quite successful. I'm joined now by Jan Brogan, author of The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston's Struggle for Justice. The book opens with a party at the Harvard Club in Boston, celebrating the end of the 1976 football season, and then it follows the players to an after-party in the combat zone. I love the way it starts out because it sets up these two environments and these two groups of characters who just couldn't be more different from one another. Can you just set the stage and talk a little bit about what the Harvard Club would have been like? It was, you know, just this beautiful old world steeping with tradition. Everything at Harvard was steeped in tradition. The football players were there to congratulate them for their year. Was it a winning season? They were favorites to win, and uh, they did not. So it was a disappointing season, but they were still, you know, celebrating the end of it. Ethel Kennedy was there to award the scholarship in her husband's name. It was a very classy event. So then nearly the whole team, plus the equipment manager, some other add-ons, go to the combat zone. First of all, where in Boston is this district that we're talking about? And then what sort of legal businesses were operating there? And then what other maybe less legal entertainment could you find there? Okay, so it's like a four-block area mm-hmm. um, centered around lower Washington. A lot of the business fronts are on Washington, parts of LaGrange and Boylston Street, mm-hmm. and some of Essex and Beach. It's bounded on one side by Neyland Street, you know, it's right next to Chinatown, and kind of downtown crossing on the other side. Almost what we just think of as the theater district today. Yes. Which is- other theaters at the time. <laughs> and so at the time, I think there were like 35, 36 adult entertainment enterprises there, like strip mm-hmm. clubs, uh, X-rated movies were big then. There's a gay s- steam bath. These little peep shows where people go, you know, you put in a quarter for the porn reel to go. You have to remember mm-hmm. this is before the internet or VCRs. So this is where people went to get their pornography, you know, adult bookstores, there was lots of prostitution. So it's centered around Liberty Tree Square. There's sort of a, it's like a triangle in, um, off Washington and on Boylston. In 1976, which is the year this happened, that would have been just on a Saturday night, that just would have been packed with prostitutes, all waiting for the men to come out of the strip clubs. 
we have the the Harvard players then descending into this environment. Right. It was a Harvard tradition because it was a place of danger. People got mugged. They got pickpocketed. Uh, there were fist fights. Um, you know, you went there for the excitement of the danger. At BC, they called it Force Night because you went in force. You know, the team went in force because then they were, it was safer. And at some point, I'm not sure if it was when the club closed or when they decided they had enough, they leave the strip club and there's an interaction with these two uh, sex workers, both of whom are black, one of whom you say was only 16 at the time. Right. They're at the naked eye. They, they leave the naked eye and they're headed to their cars. And one group of maybe six football players and the equipment manager walk past the carnival lounge. And as they're walking by, a couple of young black women dressed as prostitutes start talking to them. And they're some of them are ignoring them because uh, just in the news the week before, there had been a lot about what was called the robber horse scheme, which was women dressed as prostitutes would sidle up to men. It was called the fondle. They would fondle them, and while they were distracted, they would pickpocket them. So some of the some of the students knew about it and told them to get lost, but some of them were drunk, and they, there was a conversation about having $50 in their wallet and what were their charges, and they all ended up back at the Harvard van. One of the women that got in, I think it was a 16-year-old, and she was there. They all agreed for about two or three minutes. There's discussion about having her come back to the frat, and uh, she bolts, and he realizes the wallet is gone. Uh, and that's when the trouble starts. There's one young man who's at the center of the story, and I, I'm going to have to go, go to you for the pronunciation. Is it Andy Popolo? Yeah, it's Andy Popolo. He's in a different car with another student, and they're just waiting for the driver. As the first group chases the prostitute down Boylston Street, the friends who are about to get into the car, they call them. They say, there she goes. Or she's got, he's, they got Charlie's wallet. Chase her. So a couple of those kids start ch chasing the prostitute. And so now you've got maybe eight Harvard football players chasing this young black woman down the street. She stumbles on the street. One of the Harvard football players who reaches her first picks her up. And she, he says, she screams at him, I don't have the wallet. So he says, okay, and he lets her go. Uh, someone puts her in a taxi, and um, another black guy comes and all of a sudden knocks down the guy who picks her up. And they jump to their feet just as all the other Harvard football players arrive, and they wind up around the um, tea station on Boylston Street, you know, back at the edge of the common. Mm -hmm. And Tom Lincoln says... He, he doesn't have to walk. Let's go home. And just as they're about to turn, another black guy comes in and he stabs Tom Lincoln. These football players very much feel like they're the victims in this situation. They, they've been robbed. They, they feel like they're trying to write something that's been done wrong. But the way it presents to anybody who happened by after the first instant would have been, oh, here's this dozen or, or more big guys chasing after one or two much smaller, younger in one case woman, girl. I feel like it could be very confusing for both parties involved. The 16-year-old was in a different area at this point, but still, she's only 21. She's black and they're all, they're all white. There were black members of the Harvard football team and they were there that night. But it sounds like from your description that not one of them 
participated in this chase and then the fight that ensued. Is that right? I spoke to one of them and he said, that was in the middle of busing, you know? They weren't going to subject themselves to chasing a prostitute and get it caught by cops or get beat up. They were too smart to get involved. Yeah, it seems like as sort of a very privileged group of the football team within a very privileged group, a lot of the white players probably felt a lot of license to that. A lot of the sort of boys will be boys behavior, they they knew they would get away with up to a certain point of escalation. And, and maybe the black players didn't have that same freedom. I don't think it was that thought out, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I, I actually think they stole Charlie's wallet and Charlie <laughs> Charlie went after them. And I think they went after Charlie to make sure he didn't get in trouble. They end up sort of arranged around the, the tea station on Boylston Street and a fist fight happens. There's a moment of escalation. What was the outcome? Uh, Leon Easterling jumps in and stabs Tom Lincoln. And they all say, knives. Oh, my God, he's got knives. And they mm-hmm. all turn around and bolt. The Harvard, All the Harvard players turn around and bolt and run back to the van. Um, and this is where they, they, they stop being, you know, if there's – there's any instant that if they're the aggressors, they're no longer the aggressors. Then they get chased back. They all of them get into the van except Charlie. And then there's another guy who's a mystery, the man in the cranberry jacket. Some people say he's black. Some people say he's white. Some people say he's Hispanic. But everybody agrees on the cranberry jacket. And he pulls Charlie up by the tines and starts beating him against the, the door. He must have been pretty big because Charlie, Charlie was a big guy but he was also very drunk. Andy had, by this point, gotten out of the back of his car. And at that moment, he sees his teammate, Charlie, being beaten against the side of the van. He grew up in the city. He's a city kid from the North End. He goes in to help his friend. Edward Soros raises his fists, and they get into a fist fight. And then Easterling jumps over Soros' back and stabs Andy. In the chest, it sounds like? Uh, well, first it's, first it's in the chest. And then and another teammate appears, um, Scott Coolidge, and he picks Andy up and he grabs him and he says, let's get out of here. And Andy says, mm-hmm. yes. At this point, Andy's okay. And they're retreating from the alley. They're back on Boylston and Easterling comes at him his second time. And this time he takes the, the knife and he stabs him in the stomach and twists it by, according to the medical testimony, six inches up into the heart and, and punctures the heart in two different places. Police are there within a matter of seconds, and they take uh, Andy to Tufts, which is just down the street, to the emergency room. He arrives dead on arrival, uh, but they're able to restart his heart and take him into surgery. At the same time, Tom Lincoln's getting taken to Mass General. Um, What was his condition when he got taken in? He was stable. It was a a serious wound, but it wasn't life-threatening. Pretty immediately... Andy's family is going to come into Tufts while he's still in, in emergency trauma surgery. We should take a minute and introduce the Popolos. You said that, they, that Andy was a city kid and that, that they were from the North End. Andrew Popolo Sr., the father, is an Italian immigrant. He came at age five and, and his mother's from Italian descent and their families are in the North End. And they raised the kids mostly in the you know two-bedroom two apartment over a leather goods shop mm-hmm. in the North End. till. They're like 14 and 12, I think. 
and then they have an older sister who's like 16 and that's why they move because she's sleeping in the in the Castro convertible couch in the living room. <laughs> the younger brother said, we thought we, we had it made because we had our own bathroom. A lot of apartments hmm. in the North End did not have their own bathrooms. You shared one. So they moved to, to a, you know, a, a modest house in the Jamaica Plain. That's where he is when he's in college. Um, you know, obviously he's living at the Harvard dorm, but that's, that's where his parents' house is. So they come from, from JP. He's in, he's there, he's in surgery and they wait the night, you know. And, and at that point, the emergency room is just packed. And not, not only friends and teammates and supporters and families, but also it seems like outside the emergency room, there is every form of, of media in New England. It's immediately a big story. There are a couple of trends in Boston at that time to help explain sort of the intense interest in this case. The busing controversy, which we've, we've hinted at a little bit, and the porno panic. It's hard to wrap your head around just how violent the protesting over busing was. Boston is very ethnically divided. Boston's very poor to start off with. I mean, cities were, in general weren't doing well. Boston was really even poorer. And that's because the middle class had moved out in the 60s and early 70s, leaving only the very rich and the poor. And the poor at that time were, were, were white. It's, it's a very poor, poor neighborhood. And these poor neighborhoods are told you're getting bust. And so Charlestown and, and Southie were just up in mm-hmm. arms. They were, they were protesting. Thousands of people would be in the streets. Grown adults were throwing rocks at bus, buses full of black children coming to school, you know, trying to imagine that. You know, kids were getting stabbed and, you know, when you got stabbed in the street, people were riding in the streets. It was a very violent place. So it's very racially tense. Then you have the, the pornography thing, which is actually the bigger thing at the moment. So at the time, X-rated movie houses in downtowns were relatively new, and Supreme Court decisions said that the First Amendment protected them. Boston dealt with it. Boston, you know, the city that banned everything, you know, the, the city of Puritans had created an adult entertainment district that was very controversial. Even though the city did it to restrict the growth of the business, it was viewed as license. And it was Harvard, right? A Harvard mm-hmm. white kid had gotten, gotten stabbed in the combat zone. This kind of proved how stupid Boston was for taking this approach. It sounds like the Boston Police Department also took a very hands-off approach uh, to the combat zone while... The Angelo crime family took a, took a hands-on approach. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how those two groups interacted with the combat zone? Yeah, so um, I guess what, what one's, some of their studies said that 40 to 50% of the, of the businesses were owned by the mob. You know, this is, this is the mob in its heyday. This is a couple years after the, the um, Godfather movies, you know, which, which gave them kind of this patina of, of – uh, glamour. While they're making, I think I estimated like in today's dollars, about half a million dollars a week off their businesses, they are flush with cash. And Boston police are at this point really corrupt. De Grazia, the, com- the police commissioner, had been brought in to clean up the department. The commissioner himself starts a, a 32 month secret investigation into his own police force. And feels he's got to make it public 
rather than give it to the mayor. And it reveals that they're drinking at the bars in the clubs for free. One of the things DeGrazia said was, what shocked him was how cheaply a cop could be bought. You know, not all of them, but like at least he said in the, in the combat zone, 50%. They often would um, sabotage their own investigations by telling off the mob. They would basically arrest small-time hustlers who, who weren't connected so they had some arrests and, and leave alone, you know, any mob-related activity. They would extort sex from the prostitutes. And, and this report illuminates this Robert Hoare scheme. So a week before this happens, in the news, people are reading that there's this new wrinkle to the Robert Hoare scheme where the, the women have male, male protectors who, if, you know, they get caught doing it, will come in and protect them from the, the mad mark. It's going to be big news in, in Boston because, you know, it's Harvard, it's, it's, it's white kids, it's black defendants, and, and it's big news nationwide, mostly because of the pornography. Thank you for taking that, that diversion with me from Andy Pupolo's hospital bed to, to get a little bit of the, the background. You said that he was brought in dead on arrival, but the doctors were able to restart his heart. It sounded like there was a lot of optimism that first night and the maybe the first morning what what was the prognosis for Andy at first the fact that they could restart his heart they considered a miracle and they put some light in his eyes and they, and they see the the pupils dilate so they think they got him there in time so it's supposed to be a miracle and that's what at the press conference the next morning that police and district 1 are giving these police got them there to the hospital in time. This is the same district mm -hmm. one that has, has gotten all this criticism. Right? Yeah. So now it's at that point, the information they have is that he's going, he's going to be okay because of their fast action. And this is the news that goes out. And then Andrew senior and his little brother, Danny, right? Yeah. His sister and his mother, Helen, they're coming back to the hospital after like an hour to just yeah, go get some fresh clothes, maybe have a cup of coffee, get cleaned up. And the story changes then. So when they come back to see him, he's immediately seizing. A seizure is a sign that the oxygen's lacking in his brain. And about then the doctors, I think, guessed that they were wrong. Uh, but the family, you know, still wants to believe in the miracle. And uh, in the beginning, he looks so healthy and, you know, he's on, you know, all sorts of life support, but he's, he's strong and he's healthy and he's a fighter. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, the whole city wants to believe he's going to fight his way through it. The, the city wants a happy ending. And it becomes, I mean, spectacle doesn't even begin to, to describe it, not even the media spectacle, but just all the, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the hacks who are coming in to, to somehow get a part of this Puppolo story. They're using him to grandstand with their opinions about the combat zone, right? What's the sort of the balance of opinion there? Um, I don't know if they're using him to grandstand. I would say the city wasn't happy, all that happy about the combat zone. So right. immediately people are calling for the shutting down of the combat zone. Ray Flynn, you know, who goes on to become the mayor, he actually had coached Andy Popolo. So he knew him. And he also, he had opposed, he'd been at the meeting opposing the zoning from the start because he knew the area from his youth. So he'd been opposed to it all along. But now he, the next day he's down there with a petition to shut it down. Mm. 
I actually think with Ray Flynn, it was a very sincere feeling. You know, he goes on to become the ambassador to Rome. He's a very religious right. man, and he did not like the combat zone. And the combat zone was a wild place, you know? Right. It was wild, but it was, you know, then it was also, it was the beginning, it was the sexual revolution, right? So it wasn't without social value. You know, it was the place mm. where gays could come, where there was a steam bath, there were some gay bars nearby. You know, an interracial couple could live in one of the few apartments. My husband calls it the pornographic DMZ. <laughs> yeah, in yeah. the rest of the city, if you were a town, you couldn't go into Southie and vice versa, but everybody would sit at the bars together in the combat zone. A group of business leaders in uh, what they call the Boston Adult District tried to play up that value that the combat zone brought, right? With a, a PR campaign that I thought was really interesting. Who, who did they get to speak for the adult businesses? Yeah, so um, it was called, and I love the name of the, the acronym for the organization was BAD. <laughs> Boston Adult District? district adult District, Andrew, yeah. District, yeah. So they had a spokeswoman, Deborah Beckerman, who was a former dancer. She's very attractive. She likes the spotlight and she's she's smart and she's well-spoken. And she also has a little bit of a PR background. So I think she might've done some PR for one of the hospitals or something. Um, so so what, what does she, how does she frame the, the problem, quote unquote, in the zone? She says, she says the police are responsible for Popolo's murder. And, th- and this is before he's even dead. Hmm. Um, she blames it on, she says that the businesses were calling for more uh, police presence in the district, which is, you know, that's, it's sort of, they might have been, but they were also, you know, wooing them with alcohol. So it's, you know, but, you know, some of the the prostitutes who call themselves the legitimate prostitutes are mad about this pickpocket scheme because it's driving away business, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make them look good. Immediately following the murder, the same week, a state trooper dies after a fistfight in this combat zone. So the streets are flooded with police. It goes from no police to just so much police presence that, that there's no, you know, the prostitutes are, are basically cleared of the area. There's nothing going on. The strip clubs are empty. Business is off and they organize. Well, they were actually organized before this happened, but this is where they really get their most, get a lot of press. I find some of her arguments pretty convincing. Um, Especially around the the lack of policing that certainly wouldn't be the first time that police either were paid to look the other way or just didn't give as much protection to, to people or or areas they thought were, were less deserving of it. Well, yeah, yeah. Part of the deal was when, when they when they zoned it, they were supposed to spruce up the area and, mm. you know, and, and in, increase police presence. And neither of those two things happened. So we have the porno plague driving everybody's interest in the case to a, a near frenzy as Andy's condition starts to, to get worse. He was at Tufts for 31 days in all. How did the trajectory of his condition fare after that sort of initial burst of hope? He flatlines pretty early and doctors talk about pulling the plug. But they're also cautious about it because this is 1976 and the Karen Ann Quinlan case was only, I think, maybe six months to eight months before. For our listeners, what is the Karen Ann Quinlan case? Oh, so Karen Ann Quinlan, who died of a, who, who overdosed in New Jersey and was basically a vegetable, 
her family wanted to remove her from life support, you know, arguing that she was gone and they didn't want to see their daughter waste away on life support. And they had to go to court to be able to take her off life support. They did not have that right. That case established the precedent that you could take somebody off life support. Uh, but still, it was a, it was a, it was a relatively new concept. And, you know, the Popolos are very religious people and they were praying for a miracle. And so the family basically never even seriously considers ending the life support measures. No, they never do that. He dies on life support. And so how did he finally die? What was the cause? He just wasted away. You know, he just wasted away. They knew he was, he, he was going and they called the family to say goodbye. His father was with him when he, I think he, when the machines just stopped. Obviously, Andy's family, friends, his immediate circle are just overwhelmed with grief, with shock. But in the old neighborhood in the North End, there were some folks who had a different reaction to his death. And it seems like the rumor mill immediately got started after Andy died. What, what did people say was going to happen? Susan Warnock, who was a, re- a radio reporter, then she said nobody thought there would be a trial. Because the rumors were so strong that the mob was going to kill them in jail. You know, the thinking goes, the mob had a couple of uh, motives. One thing, this murder cost them a lot of money in terms of revenues at the combat zone. And also, this kid represents, you know, the pride of the North End. It sounds like the Popolos would have had some exposure to members of the Angelo family in their time in the North End. Yeah, so Andrew Sr. went to, knew all of them. He went to, to school with them, like grade school with them. And he was a um, Marine. He was in I- Iwo Jima, you know, and he came back and he was offered a, a corner and he politely turned it down because he was pretty straight laced. You have plenty of mob exposure. People would come up to Danny all the time and said, don't worry, it's going to be taken care of. Don't worry, you're not going to have to go through a trial. It's going to be taken care of. Just to, as a reminder, how old is Danny, the, the younger brother at this point? Danny's 19 when this happens. 19. And, you know, he and looks up to his brother. His brother is his everything. He still is. Despite all the rumors that something was going to happen to the defendants, amazingly, all three of them were indicted the same morning that Andy died. Yeah. So just to introduce some of the characters that we're going to meet in the trial, we have at the defense table, uh, Henry Owens. He was... So excited about this this case, he offered to take it pro bono. Why was that? Henry Owens is a black attorney. Um, he's young at the time. His father owned Owens, I think, a moving company that was very successful. He could have he could have gone into the business and it would have been easy. But he really, for civil rights, he went into law. He'd worked in the prosecutor's office, I think, in Middlesex County. He started his own defense firm, and he he wanted in on this trial, so he offers to represent. Richie Al- Richard Allen, pro bono, so he can get the case. He said at the time that his main concern before the, the trial started was Judge uh, James Roy. So what was his reputation like that made Owens concerned? A judge James Roy was known as the hanging judge. He was very, very uh, favorable to the prosecution. Mm-hmm. Defense lawyers believed that he was chosen when it was important for the case, for the state to win the case, and that these, these three black men were not going to get a fair trial with Judge Roy on the bench. You know, uh, Henry Owens called him an out-and-out racist. In both the initial trial and then the appeal that gets a new trial, 
one of the key factors is the makeup of the jury. What made the the makeup of a jury back then different than it is today? So at the time, jurors were called in for like a month. So because jurors were called in for a month, they also allowed just a ton of exceptions mm-hmm. for people who could claim financial difficulty. And that was basically anybody with a good job. Because so many people were excluded, were granted exclusions, what you were left with was the very young, the very old, and union workers whose, whose contract covered jury service. Also, the roles came from registered voters, and blacks did not register to vote at the same rate. So there weren't that many blacks in the jury pool to start off with. And then there were other considerations that would whittle that number down even further. You talk about the challenge process for for jurors. The way it works is they call, I think 185 people got called total. That's the jury pool. And then they get divided in up into veneers, which go to the different cases. And then they go to the judge and the judge and the lawyers you know, the judge interviews them. They're, they can they can be struck for two two reasons. One is for cause, and for cause might be they've already d- made up their mind and they can't be fair. You know, they're interviewed about their, their views. How much publicity have you heard? How has it affected you? Do you know anybody who's involved in this? Are you related to a cop? Are you related to a lawyer? And because the publicity was so massive, a lot of people were excused for cause. And it, it took a long time to see a jury. In addition to being struck for cause, the lawyers were all given a certain amount of peremptory challenges. And these are challenges that they can just strike someone and they don't have to give a reason. The prosecutor winds up striking, I think it's 12 of 13 black jurors, potential jurors, using his peremptory challenges. And they choose one token black as a means of protection and they figure they're covered. The sole black juror was made the foreman, right? To make sure that who would still be there at the end of the trial. Exactly. So they were covering their bets. They thought they thought they were covering their bets. So once we finally get a jury impaneled, what was prosecutor Tom Mundy able to have the the witnesses establish? What was the narrative that he put together of what happened that night? Tom Mundy also to give you some background was at the time the top prosecutor Defense attorneys say that at the time, there weren't a lot of great prosecutors. He really is a super intelligent guy and a really good prosecutor. He can try a case. So um, he, you know, he has a super lot of evidence in this case. He's got eight eyewitnesses. He's got witnesses from the street who weren't involved in it. He has witnesses who say, and these are the Harvard students, who say that when the, when the, the, the black guys came after them, they said, we are going to get you, we're going to cut you whiteies. So Tom Mundy is going after the three of them using a, a joint venture. Mm-hmm. Even uh, just being there and providing assistance so that the person feels they have the protection to stab somebody, that can be considered joint venture. Monday is trying to establish joint venture two ways. He's, he's establishing it by just the fact that they knew Easterling had a knife and he would use it. And then they follow him. To, they go with him to the alley, already knowing he had a knife and he used it on Tom Lincoln. That alone can establish joint venture. But he's also saying all three of them were protectors for the prostitute, that they came out to chase the Harvard football players, not because they saw a young black woman in distress, but because they were in on it and that they were doing it for a take of the wallet. For the rest of the trial, which members of the family 
would attend and then who who would stay away besides Danny? So in the first trial, Father Andrew Sr., he testifies, but he also mm-hmm. goes and his sister-in-law, Janice Popolo, accompanies him. The, the family does the family's told not to come because mm-hmm. if you cry and you know it's very painful for starters. Yeah. Uh, but to hear all that, and if you cry out, that could cause a mistrial. So the prosecutor tells them not to come, and they don't. One thing I was really struck by your description that Judge Roy, it seemed like he essentially couldn't tell Henry Owens apart from his client. <laughs> yeah, he calls him Alan throughout the whole thing. Do you get the impression that he was trying to put his thumb on the scale, or was he? just confused about the identity of the attorney in front of him. He does not like Henry Owens. It's, that's very clear. And he, every time he objects to anything, immediately puts him down. I do think he was trying to show disrespect for his case. Can you give us a sense of how each of the three attorneys capped off the, the, the trial with their closing statements? Uh, so Henry Owens uh, basically says, he, my client is being tried for murder the crime his only crime is being a black man in the area you know there's no there's no testimony he touched papalo there's no no testimony he was involved in either fight um you you can't tr- convict somebody of murder for just being in the area Suarez's lawyer hurley says you can't use joint venture this is nothing like a bank robbery it doesn't apply he he is very derogative about his clients. He says, basically, they're just a product of the... He actually says, I don't put this in the book, but he says they're a product of the ghetto and you can't blame them, kind of. I mean, it's it's a very weak defense, I thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, Sherman says, look, he's Easterling's lawyer and Easterling's... Easterling says, look, we've, we've heard testimony, you know, Andrew Popolo was a noble young man. Mm-hmm. He put his life at risk to save a friend. But if he was noble, so was Leon Easterling. He was saving his friend. Well, Sharon said, do you expect to believe that these Harvard boys, they were drinking all night, but they weren't drunk? The, this young prostitute forced her way into the van, you know? But he concludes with this, the, the noble act. And um, I, thought that, I, thought his, I thought his closing was very compelling. So the trial comes to its natural conclusion. We have the closing arguments by each of the defense attorneys, Tom Mundy delivers his masterfully crafted closing argument. But then what I was really struck by was the almost Byzantine complexity of the jury instructions that Judge Roy gave to the jurors. What were some of the scenarios that he had to prepare them to consider when, when they were going to go back and deliberate on this case? Well, it is very complex because there's three different defendants and then he has to con- he has to explain joint venture. He, they believe they shared the intent, then they all have to go for first degree murder. If they don't share the intent, or if you believe that Easterling was really trying to defend Soros, then it could be manslaughter. It's very complicated, and I you know I thought the the judge did a good job with the jury instructions to the tune of hours. I think I read of of jury instruction. Yeah, so it's a complicated case. I mean, both both it's it's very and it's hard for the jury to understand. After all that, how long did it take to come to a verdict? Not long. So I think they recess around noon, and they only they deliberate till four in the afternoon, and then they don't have a decision that day, but they have a decision at ten 
15 the next morning. First degree murder for all three men. And Soros has additional charges for the the fight that took place where he kicked somebody like assault and battery with a shod foot. In Massachusetts at the time, first degree murder carried an automatic sentence of, of life without possibility of parole. Is that, am I remembering that right? Yeah, no, it still exists. I think they all got life sentences and then almost immediately public opinion starts to change uh, in the months or the, the year or so after this, this trial concludes What's happening to shift public opinion in the city of Boston about this case? So this this is where busing really comes into play. At the time when the first when the Popolo jury is is called, whites are really still feeling quite put upon. But public sentiment is starting to change. Some of the violence is there's there's more evidence of white violence against blacks. And then there's the case of Brian Nelson, which is just heinous, where and it's in Medford. A carload of, of whites chases three black guys in a, in, a, in a car, and they're all young. And it's a snowstorm, and the black guy's car spins out. They get out, and, the, and the, they get into a fight. And Brian Nelson, who was like, I think, 18 at the time, gets stabbed to death with, I think, a broken Coke bottle and beaten with a tire iron. Immediately, the judge, you know, all 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 of the whites are arrested. The judge immediately lets all, all the other whites except a, a white marine, but he never gets charged with murder. I think he gets charged with manslaughter. Then the, an all white jury acquits him. The contrast then to the Popolo case is pretty extreme. Yeah, the contrast that that provides a really strong contrast, and the city is changing. They're getting they're getting sick of busing. Louise Day Hicks is is voted out. Pixie Palladino is voted out. You know, the demographics of the city are changing too. Hicks, who I think in 76 was the city council president and 77 loses her council seat. Yeah. So there's the case of uh, of a a tourist group. I think this example is going to resonate with our audience because we're all history nerds. And I'm sure many of our listeners have walked the Freedom Trail and walked up the many, many stairs of the Bunker Hill Monument. It's a private school, right? Maybe even a religious school from somewhere, I want to say, in the Midwest. Yeah. No, no, in, in uh, Pennsylvania. You know, they're coming to Boston to see the Bunker Hill Monument and, and clearly did not get the memo that you can't go to Charlestown if you're black. Mm-hmm. So they they go and on their way home, they get beaten by th- three white guys with hockey sticks. You can't be a tourist in and go to a Bunker Hill Monument. In, right. in this city without getting beaten. And the police go and they arrest three white guys and they bring them to trial. An all-white jury acquits the, the three hockey players. Now, there's so much violence. Black people are trying to move into Dorchester. They're getting their houses firebombed. And that's in the press. And the idea is like, well, so what good does it do if you arrest these guys if you know an all-white jury is going to let them off? The Popolo case or the Popolo trial is is also sort of a turning point for the combat zone too, right? What what changes happen there because of the trial? Um, well, th- this it, it actually starts right after the murder, you know. Mm-hmm. So the police, you know, Suffolk County District Attorney and the and the new police chief um, Joseph Jordan just announced combat zone is a failure. It was a failed. It's mm-hmm. basically a failed experiment. It's got to go, and mm-hmm. so. They go after all the, 
the the strip clubs. And, and pretty soon, Ray Flynn becomes mayor. He's very determined. He does everything he can to shut down the combat zone. I mean, he he won't succeed, but he'll succeed in in shrinking it. A very affecting moment for the family that happens among all this is in the fall of 1977, which I think would be almost exactly a year after the the crime or the attack. The city names a park after Andy. Yes, yes. So the North End gets together and they petition the city to rename um, the waterfront park where Andy Poplo and, and his younger brother, you know, they first began youth sports uh, and it becomes Andrew Popolo Park. And that becomes political about who shows up and who doesn't. The governor shows up, the biggest anti-busing opponents show up, but Kevin White doesn't show up. Oh, yeah. Well, the tragedy for, for, for the Popolo family, um, I mean, one of the many tragedies, their son's name becomes intertwined with, first with the combat zone, and now with racism. So when I was one month old, in March 1979, the Supreme Judi- Judicial Court overturns the convictions in the Popolo case. Ah, okay, yeah. What was the, the rationale behind the SJC decision? The, the decision is interesting on, on a couple of levels. For one thing, shortly before they announced their decision, a California high court had been the first to say, you know what? These peremptory challenges, this use of peremptory challenges to get an all-white jury, that's racist. So the SJC says, you struck 12 out of 13 potential black jurors. That's a pattern of racism. They also reject all the defense's arguments that there wasn't enough evidence to convict all three men, uh, first-degree murder, that there was plenty of evidence to support joint venture. And so that's what the family sees. So that makes the setting aside of the convictions even more painful for the family. And coming into a new trial, then there's a lot of turnover on both sides of, of the case. We have prosecutor Tom Mundy is going to try the case again, the, the second time and Henry Owens will continue representing Richard Allen. Everybody else turns over. And I think most importantly, I think you should intru- introduce this to the new judge, but also just how did that change the second trial? Well, let's start with the defense attorneys. So now you have Norman Zalkind and Henry Owens. A former prosecutor told me they're the kind of lawyers who give $50 of effort for every $1 of state fee, you know. (laughs) They're very motivated. They're very bright. Uh, Norman Zalkind is a very, very savvy and smart lawyer. And Andrew Good is, uh, he had worked for Henry Owens. So they, they have a completely well-prepared, aggressive, and savvy defense team. And then the judge, the new judge, uh, is Judge McGuire. He's brought back from retirement from this case because he's known for his fairness. To me, and you can correct me if this is a wrong impression, but that, that seems like almost a direct rebuke to Judge Roy's the perception that he was sort of in the tank for the prosecution. I think in this instance, the rebuke probably came with the more on the jury selection part of it because Owens was objecting every time a black juror was struck and, and the judge was just saying, yeah, 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 shut up. Basically they need a new judge and they get, you know, they, they, they they try to get one that is known for his fairness. The appeal is called the, is called the Suarez decision. 
It establishes new parameters for how lawyers can use their peremptory challenges. And the first time these new parameters are employed is in the second Popolo trial. And it's like fireworks from the beginning. I think Mundy actually did a better job of proving that there was a joint venture scheme that these defendants may have been involved in at least Easterling and Allen. I think where he falls down is I don't think Soros was involved in it. And he's trying to lump them all together. I think the mistake he makes is by trying too hard to prove that Easterling and Allen, they regularly worked for them. So Mm. Mundy tries to compensate from the way he questions Easterling about how could he have all, he's basically trying to prove he's a pimp. How can you have a gym membership? How can you have this? How can you have that? How can you have a, and he's got a white wife who is in the seating. He doesn't say it out loud, but he—he's pretty clear. He means, "How can you have a white wife?" And it sounds very demeaning and racist, and it turns the jury. So eventually, the jury goes away to deliberate, and I don't think anybody who served on a Suffolk County jury is eager to draw out the experience. But you have a, a funny note about why this particular jury might have been especially motivated to wrap things up quickly. What moved them along? The trial started, I think, like in October 19th, and now it's November 22nd. Thanksgiving is the next day. So they want to go home. Defense attorneys told me that there was also a juror who was, who was drinking too much and smelled. And they wanted, they had asked to get the person removed, and the judge said no, and they wanted this over and done with. But they still deliberated two and a half days, I think. So more than the first time around. Yeah, more than the first time around. So what did they come back with in the end? So they, acquitted both Soros and Allen of all charges, Mm. and they found Easterling guilty only of manslaughter. You introduced the concept of jury nullification. I'm not sure whether you would argue that it was a case of that, but you certainly bring it up as a possibility. What what does that term mean? So jury nullification came into kind of of layman's uh, speak during the O.J. Simpson trial. You know, the argument was that that jury, it wasn't, necessarily saying that OJ was innocent, but they're making a statement on the LA police department rather than on OJ. The term nullification means most instances, it means you're nullifying the law. Like, so during the fugitive slave act, you know, it was illegal to harbor slaves. Slaves would run away to new England and then someone might get charged with, with aiding and assisting that and making them liable. They'd go to court and no jury would convict them because the jury didn't agree with slavery. So it's it's when the jury consciously or unconsciously is is making a statement on on the law itself or and, on in, on circumstances. And in this case the circumstances are the background of intense racial violence in the city. Intense racial violence and I think it's that the Globe had also done a spotlight series showing how all white juries had consistently sentenced blacks to longer sentences and to harsher prisons than whites for the same exact crime. Whatever you or I might think about the justice of the verdict in the the second trial, it seems like it had a really long-lasting impact on Danny Popolo. How did his life change in the, uh, I guess, the months and maybe the years following that second verdict? You know, because so many people told him that it was going to get taken care of, he felt that it should be taken care of. You know, they had offers. 
to, to get them whacked in prison. And they put their faith in the criminal justice system and the criminal justice system had failed them. He, as the, as the son, as the remaining son, whose, whose brother had always had his back and always been loyal to him. He felt it his job, it was job to be loyal to his brother. It sounds like Danny almost well, did stalk Richard Allen for maybe a decade after Andy's death. Yes. Well, it's pretty easy to stalk Richard Allen because he was always at the combat zone. But Edward Soros, yeah, I don't think he hung around the combat zone anymore. And mm-hmm. Easterling was in prison. So he was in the combat zone all the time. So how does Andy go from driving aimlessly around the combat zone and you know, maybe fantasizing about doing something to Richard Allen to to hiring somebody or trying to hire someone to break Allen's legs. You know, studies have since shown it's a, it's a really common response to murder. You know, murder is just a different kind of grief and particularly hard if on adolescence. It creates trauma. And Danny would for p- periods, he would obsess on revenge, but then he would go, he was also very religious and he would, he would go to church on his knees praying to be delivered from this revenge. What did Leon Easterling's release do to, to Danny Popolo's state of mind? It, well, it refocused him away from Richard Allen, who, mm-hmm. after all, hadn't been the one to brutally murder his brother, to Leon Easterling. And the idea of Leon Easterling walking free was just incredibly painful for him. There are times when Danny can forget this. You know, he right. is moving on with his life. He's got a, he starts a successful business with his father. He marries, he has children. He's living a, a, a productive life and he mm-hmm. just has bouts of this. But sometimes he can't help it and it returns. It sounds like maybe one of the worst of those returns or maybe the worst and, and last of those returns was a couple of years after Easterling's release, he talked himself into plotting a, a murder for hire scheme. Did he go through with that? He made the initial inquiries and he was about to set up a meeting. He was frustrated with himself for never kind of pulling the trigger, but I don't think he was ever going to pull the trigger. I think early on, maybe when he was 19 years old, if he had encountered them in a dark alley when it was all fresh, he might have, who knows what might have happened. But I think as the years progressed, it was part of his grief as opposed to a real plan. His good friend says to him, Andy was going to be a doctor. He was going to heal people. He would not, you keep thinking, because he kept thinking he had to do this for his brother. You know, it was his obligation to do this for his brother. And his friend convinced him, it's not for your brother. Your brother wouldn't want this. And then the friend said the way to honor him is to tell his story. Tell his story. Besides participating in your, in your book, how, how has he told Andy's story? Uh, well, the, originally, when, when he decided to do it, they were going to do a film. And they had, you know, they had a Hollywood director who was a classmate you know, at Harvard with Andy. And when I got involved, I said, I'll do the screenplay on spec, on, on condition I can do a book in the way I see it. I don't know if this book is healing for Danny. I, I think maybe it it didn't accomplish what he wanted wanted it to do because I did see things differently. But, you know, he's done what he can to tell his brother's story. And is Danny doing okay these days? I think he is. They're a very strong, very together family. And I think someone else in the same circumstances, I don't know what would have happened to them. I appreciate you spending as much time with me today on this, this conversation as you have. And as I get ready to let you go, if... Our listeners want to follow you or your work online. Where should they look for that? 
Uh, well, my website, www.jambrogan.com. Also, you can follow me on Instagram, jambrogan with a underscore at the end, or uh, look me up on Facebook or Twitter, jambrogan. No underscore. No underscore. And are there events, book events in the Boston area that people can come out, meet you, learn more? Yeah, I'm going to be speaking at the, it's through the Tewksbury Library, uh, but it's a multi-library virtual event. And I'm be talking about how the 1976 murder uh, left a lasting imprint on the city, state, and on criminal justice. And I will be at um, the New England Crime Bait, November 12th and 13th. But that's that's really for mystery. I'll be talking on a true crime panel. But I think that might that might be sold out. And I'm going to be speaking December 8th uh, as part of the Master List Book Club author talk. Um, I'm going to be interviewed. Uh, and to register for that virtual event, you need to go to uh, Master List, which is a free newsletter from Statehouse News. And we'll make sure to link to all the events in the show notes this week, as well as linking to a way that you can purchase the book, which once again is The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston's Struggle for Justice by Jan Brogan. Jan, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. You're a, a great interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. To learn more about Jan Brogan, The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston Struggle for Justice, and The Puppalo Case, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 236. We'll have an affiliate link where you can support Hub History and your favorite local bookstores when you buy a copy of Jan's The Combat Zone. I'll also link to a December 1976 WCVB news report about the Puppalo case, as well as a handful of Globe stories about the case. Plus, I'll have links to Jan Brogan's website and social media profiles, as well as details about our upcoming book events at the Tewksbury Library and the New England Crime Bake. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line. Now I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. (laughs) 